This week on FX Guide TV. We're in Los Angeles for SIGGRAPH 2012. This and more coming up next. This podcast is brought to you by the new FX PhD Resolve 2012 Fast Forward course. Download 10 classes instantly covering DaVinci Resolve 9 and take your color grading skills to the next level. Visit fxphd.com. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. Every two years, SIGGRAPH returns to LA and these are always the biggest SIGGRAPHs on the calendar. So big that oftentimes you have to pick between two equally cool yet simultaneous programs, which is exactly what happened to the guys this week in LA. Well, thanks for that, Angie. And yeah, sure enough, one of the problems is the embarrassment of riches here at Seagraph. And first day, ran into that. First yesterday. day, first session we wanted to go and see, I had literally three things that I wanted to be at a matte painting session, a stereography session, uh, and a physics animation thing, all concurrently spread across the whole convention. Yeah, really fantastic though. As always, we've been in a lot of these, but each and every time there's a ton of great stuff that we're covering both here on FX Guide TV as well as online in our articles that you have on the site. But Mike, you saw some really cool stuff yesterday starting off yeah, with the physics. The physics one, I know I put up some stills as I'm talking, but basically this was an idea of uh, animation physics. Now this is important because if you'll know, Many of you, I'm like into maths and physics, and so a good example, John, was they were dropping uh, balls, and they were saying, well, if we drop these two balls, you know, they're gonna fall at the same rate. Yes, we know that from physics, right? Everything responds to gravity the same, but they were pointing out that in animation and in real life, you can actually tell the scale uh, by how fast things fall, and it's a little complicated, but it has to do with the diameter of the object falling, and I'm sitting there, I had these like, aha moments. Like, I was like, oh, of course, of course, and I was like, Great, but it was great fun watching that. And actually, I say that was yesterday, that wasn't actually my first day at the conference. The day before that, I was at DreamWorks for the Digi Production Conference. Now, at SIDGRAPH here, they have the technical papers, but in fact, if it's very technically focused on a production problem, that's outside SIDGRAPH's mandate. And so they have this special conference the day before, which are Weta and, and DreamWorks and others were presenting at DreamWorks, where we were covering uh, deep compositing and deep shadows and some amazing stuff there. So it's been already two days in, terrific. And of course you started off the weekday by hosting a really nice session with, uh, on Hugo with Pixamondo, Ben Grossman. And Matthew Grassner from yeah. New Deal Studios. Obviously we've covered stuff there. Also uh, Alex and Adam from, from Pixamondo. But I've got to say, I look, this is a really big hall. I've got a photo here of John sitting in the hall before anyone came in. And I thought there is no way we're filling this hall. And I was thinking, I, this film's been out for a while. I don't know if we're gonna you know, fill this. And it's like Monday morning, nine o'clock. And I was really actually seriously thinking if we had a third, maybe mm -hmm. we'd be going well. And we pretty much uh, filled up the entire hall, which is astounding. Big testament, of course, to, to how popular Hugo is, of course, Academy Award winning film. Um, but it's interesting, like tie in from that, because one of the other things we've been talking to uh, Pixar Mondo about here at the show is how they've been standardizing and streamlining and doing stuff. And one of the tools they've been using for that, uh, in fact, has been Shotgun, John. Yeah, and last week we uh, visited uh, the folks at Shotgun and sat down with Don to find out what they've been doing. Have some really cool developments, uh, including a new product called Tank. So let's go ahead and cross that interview now. Don, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So what's Shotgun these days? There's a company. What the heck do you do? We make pipeline tools for visual effects, feature animation studios. We started with a focus on production tracking, project management, 
And uh, this year we've rolled out two new big products that expands the vision to the core of the pipeline. It really is a case of you being incredibly successful and loved for one big thing and you've now taken on a couple of things that you yourself said you weren't going to take on. That's right. When we started seven years ago, we specifically said in particular we're not going to try to tackle asset management. Like That's the piece of the pipeline that we're not going to touch, mostly because we know enough about it to have a lot of respect for that problem. Um, and the, but the pipeline is a, is a big place. There's a lot of moving parts. So there was plenty of, of work to do. So the thing that we were seeing is so many people, so many studios were slowing down because they had information flow problems. So it was the, the production tracking, the project management part that we focused on solving. We were just geeking out on that part. And in terms of that product management, you really kicked some big goals. Because like, I mean, the software is universally pretty much loved and, and it's really taken a great hole because of its ease of use, like it's really familiar to a lot of people now. Yeah, it's been quite a ride. Um, we're lucky. I think we're really fortunate. Our clients are amazing. We, our approach to solving the problem was to do it with them, to iterate often with studios. Uh, we had a lot of failures, um, to be honest, uh, but we just, we just kept soldiering on. I mean, everyone was sick of this problem not being solved, and so we kept iterating and iterating with a big focus on Usability. And one of the things that it seems to me from the early days of when I first sort of saw the product, this is shotgun, that is, you're very quick to say, you know what, artists are real people in the real world. If I can come up with a good analogy mm. that they already understand, that would be a really good way to tackle a problem that maybe is hard to conceptualize. And it's always seemed to me that you are better than almost any company I know for saying, I don't have to reinvent whole new paradigms for everything right. and teach the world everything. I yep. can say, hey, you're kind of used to this way of working. In some other part of your life, I'll apply this to, to our problem. I think that's, that comes from our focus on usability. Uh, usability, sort of best practices are uh, look for standards and conventions that exist. Um, for example, I'm thankful I, I travel a lot. I'm thankful every time I get in a rental car that they didn't completely move everything around. I had to relearn everything all the time. I'd get in accidents. Um, and actually, I, I got so used to m the, my current car beeping when I backed up that I bashed a rental car because I was expecting it to beep. It was a convention that I was used to. So we apply that same thing to solving problems for studios. And, and you're right, the artists and the production teams um, are one unit. And when we first started solving this problem, production management, a lot of people were thinking of that as like a upper office problem. It's a FileMaker thing. Um, Actually, it was an Excel thing, then it was a FileMaker thing, right. then it was, oh my god, where's Shaka? <laughs> exactly. And we learned pretty quick that um, for a studio to work well together, everyone needs access to the information all the time. These are creative projects, so of course they change creatively. And everyone needs to know that. For a, a manager to run around and have to disseminate that information all the time to people was, is too slow. So if you bring the artists into the group of people you're building software for, along with the sort of data jocks, uh, the production team, that, I mean, it makes the problem really hard. But that was um, our original mission. And we've worked really hard. We've sat with artists. We continue to iterate on trying to build tools that help them do their jobs. Um, and I think this is the year we're really starting to roll out tools specific for artists. Well, let's discuss the first of the two big things that are we're talking about at the moment, and it's Revolver. 
and that seems to me to be very much the first step in expanding out. But again, it's got the same philosophy of I'm kind of used to how to do some of these things in other areas. Mm -hmm. You want to tell us a bit about what that sort of pulls together? Sure, sure. Uh, Revolver was our crack at solving the um, problem with review. So as we all know, the, uh, the cut never locks. And all the artists are constantly making new iterations of the work. Um, so that's a lot of moving parts. And for studios whose um, job is to make, make a film, make pictures, looking at the pictures was way too hard, it seemed. Um, so meanwhile, we're over here solving the production tracking part. We have all this great context. We know about the cut. We know who's assigned to work on what. We know about what iterations made it into dailies. So we looked at this, and then we looked at the players that our clients were using. Everyone started using RV at one point. And so we thought, well, what if we could take the context that we have in Shotgun and plug it into RV? Like, what if we could bring some of that into the player so people don't have to switch context, but they can leverage that information to do things that they want to do inside the player environment? And so we started experimenting. Um, and our approach to product design is really scientific. We usually just say, what would be awesome? <laughs> What would be so, what would be really cool? What would be the dream tool? And the more people we started talking about that, the more a picture started to, to form. Um, and in the design process, we started to leverage some key concepts that we see in iPad players and in tools like iTunes, tools that all the artists are familiar with anyway. Um, so we brought a lot of those features right inside of RV as a native player, and then we built a web player as well. So we took all the shotgun production tracking data and pulled it right into a HTML5 player. The goal being, you should be able to see the work at any time. You should be able to see... And in context. And in context, yeah. Should, all the latest work in context, then you should be able to go... We think of it as going wide. So it's like the film strip. I can see the latest yeah. movie, and then I can go deep, and I can go look at history. I can compare things to each other. And there's a real social element um, I think maybe a lot of people say that, um, that the, the enterprise social um, trend, but it's true. I mean, it's a lot of humans trying to work together. And, and especially in this industry where there's a lot of um, contractors and freelancers, they don't even really know each other that well. They're spread out around the world. So we've realized that bringing even as something as simple as faces into the interface. Just as a, if I'm a supervisor sitting at my desk, I'm looking at the work, seeing the face of the artist that did that. Um, and we know who that was. And letting the, the supervisor annotate on screen or write a note, click a button, and we can send that message right back to the artist. Yeah, because capturing those, for want of a better term, conversations, those notes, those mm -hmm. uh, expressions of what's wanted creatively, and making sure that that's available um, is critically important yep. because otherwise you can't operate with these massively distributed uh, systems that we're facing at the moment. That's right. Yeah, the, I think the goal is to get, well, get the best work out of the team. Um, you need iterations, and uh, you need a feedback loop. And you know, traditionally in the old days, people would file into a screening room once a day. Um, once you get to a certain scale, that's the efficient way to do it for a, a lead or a supervisor. Um, and, but that gives you one iteration a day. Um, and that relies on everyone being in the building. And now we know that everyone's spread out. And one iteration in a day isn't enough. Uh, but we still want to have that conversation. We want to connect people to each other on the work. So Revolver tries to do that. 
So if Revolver is ambitious, it's sort of almost nothing compared to asset management, which is you know the holy grail that many, I mean it's the rocks that many companies have crashed on because right. it seems immensely obvious that I want it and incredibly hard to come up with a model that is both flexible enough and in any way doable enough. So you've kind of approached it from a, we're not going to necessarily be dictatorial and own everything. You're almost attaching asset management, it seems to be, in a way that doesn't dictate everything, it just keeps an eye on everything. Is that a fair way? It's almost like a side kind of view. Yeah, and it, it, we had to evolve to that worldview. I think we're realizing that the pipeline always changes, the problem always changes. Um, and that's a good thing. I think when people attempt to solve asset management, what they try to do is, like, any problem you try to solve, you try to understand it. So I've seen 150 page specs of here's how the studio works. Yeah. Every single department, we have figured it out. Yeah. Let's solve this problem. And you and go the first and first thing somebody says is, I don't work like that. It's like, I, I don't work like that anymore. Yeah. And then the engineers are like, don't change the spec on me. You bastards. But it's a, it breaks and you, you build one piece of software to solve one way, one view of how we worked, um, that becomes restrictive. It becomes a cage. And you don't, I think people, you don't want to like tie your pipeline down. You want to enable innovation. There's something really uh, Darwinian that happens in a pipeline. Things like are born and things should die. And that's what you want to support. And it, so it took us a long time, literally years, We've seen hundreds of pipelines. We have lots of clients. We've seen a lot of people taking a crack at the can. Okay, and so, so this is Tank, this and when tank. I first heard yeah. it pitched, at this point in the pitch, I was like, I've heard all this before, like you're just saying the kind of things that <laughs> I want to hear, and then you went to the next day and explained how you implement it, I went, okay, you have actually come up with something cool here. Yeah. So let's explain that implementation, because it is not just rhetoric, what you're talking about. Right. It's this idea of having like a base kind of operating system, it's like an engine, and then yep. these applications. And the way you're doing that, I think, is genius. Can you explain it? Sure. Um, there's a couple key components. One is the file system. Um, in some, some experiments that we tried with asset management, we did what a lot of people did, where we say, give us your files. We'll take care of them. You don't really need to look in the file system. It's like looking in your, on your computer in your files for songs. Just use our iTunes interface. Um, and we try to do that, and there's benefits to that, for sure. Um, but the problem is, nobody wants to give you their file system. <laughs> That's scary. Um, and so, over time, we realized, you know what? We just need to build tools that allow people to keep their file system organized. A lot of studios think of the file system like a database. Um, there's really important information in there. And <clears throat> they write all sorts of tools and scripts with a lot of assumptions that that data is going to be correct. But unfortunately, you have humans making the rights into that database. And they, met, they mess everything up, which is really frustrating for the pipeline people. Like, the artists can't remember naming conventions and stuff. Um, and so what we realized is, you know what? Let's just help that process. Let's keep the file system the way it is. You, you don't have to change the way you work. In fact, you can have one department starting to use Tank, and no one else would even know, because we'll just put files in the right place. So file system management is a major, is the core component. Then we have this concept of engines. And what we're trying to do is connect all the tools that the artists use in the pipeline. We started with a focus on Maya and Nuke. And we want to connect them 
um, into the shotgun backend and uh, with a tool set that allows us to protect the file system. So what an engine is, is a platform on which we can build apps. And apps are little Python apps that show up in context inside the tool, inside Maya and Nuke. Yeah, so there's actually like a thing at the top of my Nuke menu yeah. that lets me actually have graphical menu stuff that helps me and it knows a lot of stuff because Shotgun told it a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. So the workflow that we think of for artists is they're going to start their day. They need to get going on some work. So we have some apps that can live inside of Shotgun um, that launch Maya, for instance, um, with one click. So I don't have to figure out like where to go in the terminal and how to launch stuff in my environment variables. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. It's just handled by Tank. So up comes Maya. And the launcher tells Maya what the artist is about to do. So now Maya knows. Maya's sort of like context aware. Like, you're going to be doing modeling. We then have a tank menu um, that holds the apps. So that's, what, that's the engine. The engine is the context. OK, this is an artist that's going to be doing modeling on this shot, in this sequence, on this project. So we know a lot about what's happening. Then, the menu contains a bunch of apps, which are atomic little pieces of tools, just utilities, uh, that help the artist work faster. Um, there are things like uh, loaders. Like, I'm going to visually uh, browse around for any of the assets. I want to see thumbnails. I want like Google-type searching. I want to grab a bunch of stuff and pull it in my scene. There are things like uh, breakdown tools. I'm working on a shot. Just, I just want to see red light, green lights. Like, let me know if I'm good. Do I need to update anything, or do I, do I not? Um, that's often a mysterious thing to a lot of artists. And if I need to update something, let me just click a couple buttons and hit go. All these apps are really visual. There's a publish app, and that's the app that I use to share my work with my team. So, and we've, we really try to get it down to one click. That was our goal. It's like just one click publishing. But when we really got into it, we ended up with, I think, two clicks. Because we really wanted to get a comment. And we built this thing where the artist can take a screenshot of what's in their viewport. Uh, so we're working really hard to get thumbnails in the system. Uh, so all these apps, these are all just atomic apps. They're all assembled. Um, and they're all designed to help the artist work faster. I want to thank Don for that. It's great. Actually, we've got an interview in a second. But I just want to flag something. At the end of this episode, we've got a, well, basically, it's a beta test for something that you guys uh, helped us do. So you want to check out the end of this episode for a new announcement. But before that, let's talk to Chris Bond. Now, Chris, well, he's basically in the same building as the Shotgun guys, just coincidentally. Yeah, I think it's a Seagraph tradition we catch up with Chris, because we've talked to him in the past about things like Krakatoa, Deadline. They have really an amazing suite of products that they have. Yeah, I mean, he actually has these two parts of the business, and actually one part of it, which is the scheduling stuff that you mentioned, the, the render farm we've spoken to him about in the past, that's been expanding and going to new versions. And that actually integrates with Shotgun, but it's not that part we want to talk to him about. What we want to talk to him about is the stuff building out from Krakatoa. And you now have Ember and a bunch of other products that really do amazing stuff with high volume of particles. It's a bit of a jigsaw puzzle of putting these bits together, but I have to say, John, I had a beer with a developer last night, and they were saying to me that they actually looked at part of doing this kind of stuff that Chris does, and they thought, you know what? These guys uh, just have it nailed, so they've actually thought, you know, why try and chase that? He's already sort of best of category. So you and I have known each other for a while, and I guess from my point of view, uh, Krakatoa was the thing that I always just fancied about your workflow. And yet the company has expanded a lot in recent times. You've got a lot of products now. Yeah, we're up to seven products. So Krakatoa, in a nutshell, is a really great place to 
basically produce and, and render particles? Yeah. Basically, Krakatoa is a high-volume particle renderer, volumetric renderer. So it can take all of your data and push out billions of particles per frame with motion blur and everything. The idea is we've added a magma flow interface to the tool set that lets you manipulate and adjust those particles in terms of color, position, space, all sorts of things. So you can use that to control turning hair into particles and various other tools. Okay, so that's a graphical kind of nodal thing. Right, magma flow is a node interface for Krakatoa. Now that magma user interface is going to reappear in a couple of other products, isn't it? That's right. So yeah. it's, it's, and these products fit together but are sold individually? That's right. Okay, so, so that's great and Krakatoa has produced spectacular results, not least of which is it produces very high volumes of particles and doesn't collapse in a heap and go and sit in the corner sucking its thumb. Yeah, we, I think last year we did 7 billion particles per frame at one of our events. Okay, so that's, you know, a few. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. A few. So It's enough. Okay, so the other product, the next product I wanted to discuss was Ember. Now, yeah. I think Ember's really, really interesting because I come from a compositing background where you manipulate stuff a lot. Yeah. And it seems to me like Ember is a cross between um, a logical operation that you can do on particles, but also it has some real analogies to well, audio sampling, really, doesn't it? That's right. So it's a field manipulation toolkit. And the idea is that you can take existing data sets like fluid simulation, smoke simulation, any volume or particle or geometry, and sample that data inside a volume. So once you've sampled it, you can start manipulating it. So it, it is akin to audio sampling and being able to manipulate. But you can also create fields from texture maps or volumes or basically paint them with geometry. There's a lot of ways to create them and manipulate them and they can they interact with each other. So to give people some, some simple examples, if I had a bunch of particles, let's say we're going from Krakatoa, I'm gonna hit other things in a second. Yeah, sure. I could sample that Krakatoa data yeah. and I could add a whole lot more particles, even though I probably wouldn't need to, but I could add a whole lot more particles yeah, it would learn from the first set. That's right. So essentially, we have a demo, for example, where we have a number of particles that just move up, and there are a few thousand. And it's just a very simple, straight particle stream. And what we do is we sample that inside the volume, and then we understand, as those particles move through space, we understand, we create fields and say, oh, this is how the particles flow. Essentially, we're creating something akin to, like, uh, a space warp or an environment where new particles can be injected and follow that similar path. So as they hit those areas, they would pass through the same area. So you could put, take a thousand particles, make it a million or a billion. But the advantage is, is you can add other operators. So in the demonstration, we take a few particles and then we add a fluid type operator, uh, operator so that those particles now are also have some curl noise and they start flickering through and doing something more like fire. Okay, so if I had two simulations, That's right. yeah. I could then sample them, them or subtract them. Or... That's the idea, yeah. So you could take two different simulations. For example, we have a demonstration where we take a uh, real flow simulation of water, we take a fume effect simulation of fire and smoke, and we put out the smoke with the water. So we, as, wherever the water contacts, it stops emitting, the, the original smoke continues to trail up, and as the water moves around, it can turn it off in real time. You can actually move it in the viewport and affect those particles live. Okay, so now we have Krakatoa feeding down to Ember. But yeah. Ember could also be bringing in stuff from, say, Nyad, from outside your package. Obviously, Nyad, not made by you guys, but it's Fluid Sims. Yeah. And I'm now literally bringing in something that you didn't make, but then manipulating it which makes me feel like I could do things that would customize, I could have a sim that looks really good of a splash, yep. but now I say in this scene, you know, the original one I did it for, 
it was great, but this one it needs to be a bit different. I don't have to redo the whole sim. I could literally modify it and then reuse it. That's right. That's the idea is that you could bring in a simulation that you like and hybridize it and create variations or you know, insert new objects. Or you could use that simulation to do something. We have a demonstration where we push cloth and we push a wall down with a NIAD simulation. So in the NIAD simulation, there wasn't a wall. We put up a wall, NIAD simulation hits it, you know, everything falls apart. Because running those sims is really expensive. And if I could just manipulate my sim rather than have to redo my sims. That's right. So a good analogy for me is I've got a stock footage element. In compositing, I can make that work because I can color correct it and warp it a bit yep. and just bend it so it works in my new Retime shot. it, all those things, yeah. Couldn't do that before with a sim because if right. there was a rock in the way, I had to move the rock and then rerun the sim. That's right. Now I can effectively bend it and warp it and change it and do stuff so that I could get around having to redo the sim. That's right, that's right. And the idea is, is you could use this to model things like cloud, actually model your target simulation. So you could create, we have an example where we create a mushroom cloud and we can manipulate it and then we can take that data set and pass it back to the simulator to simulate to get to that point or move on from that point. So you can create an existing state. So, you know, an example is perhaps there's a live action explosion and you have to take that explosion and do something with it after the fact. You can model your cloud to match that live action explosion and then simulate it after that. But it's important to understand that when we're talking about like that Nyad water sim, we're not yeah. talking about the rendered final DPX sequence That's of right. the water. We're talking about the data. That's right. So it could be a vector field. Yeah. So let's talk about frost now because okay. frost is a key tool for letting me actually go that last step from they've got a bunch of particles look awesome, but they don't actually look like real life yet, I want yeah. to turn them into polygons. Yeah, so frost is a measure that allows, very fast measure, high volume measure, lets you mesh uh, particles, took like fluids, lets you mesh um, uh, LiDAR data sets or high volume point clouds to create surface, solid surfaces like vehicles, whatever you need. And then we've got genome. Now that's where I bring in actual geometry and start yeah. getting some of these stuff, like I mentioned vector fields, I can start applying that to actual geo. Yeah, so ge genome steps in in a couple of different areas. So if you take frost data and bring it into genome, for example, you can use the original particles to retarget where the surface lines up. So you could refine or enhance your LiDAR data set or manipulate your, your, your fluids. But if you take genome and attach it to ember, then you're, you're able to, for example, use ember fields to affect geometry. So you could like warp geometry based on where particles hit for raindrops or other elements. So we discussed there bringing in, say, fluid sim stuff like Nyad, and yep. it would come in and you would say, okay, well, I can manipulate it, I can amplify it, I could change some of the characteristics that bring doing the sim, and of course I can polygonalize it and get it out. Yeah. But you also just then touched on LiDAR data. Now I think that's really interesting because LiDAR is one of the few other places that generates massive point clouds. But here, A, it's sometimes hard to even load up that many points, but, yeah. but I want to be able to both visualize it and I want to be able to manipulate it. So how would I bring in LiDAR data to this collection of tools we're talking about? Well, our, our tool sets support a variety of PTS, XYZ, LiDAR native formats, as well as our uh, PRT format, which is a lighter weight version. And that can bring in color data on the channels and the XYZ information for every point. So we can bring that in, you can manipulate it in MagmaFlow across the products. Um, in Krakatoa, you can render those, those data points. In Frost, you can surface and mesh them. In Genome, you can manipulate the corresponding mesh based on the original points. So there's a number of tools that hybridize this. In terms of Ember, 
it's probably, you could bring in the surface points, but because it's a volume tool, it's probably more likely you would bring in MRI or CAT scan data and bring those slices in and reconstruct them or do something with them. So we have a client doing medical imaging just doing just that. Okay, so let's now talk about, if I, that's my kind of jigsaw puzzle of these image tools and particle tools. Yeah. Traditionally, a lot of your stuff came as like a 3D Max kind of plug-in, though right. Krakatoa is standalone. So where are we in terms of what products can use it and also whether or not they're standalone? So we're, we're in a transitionary phase. So uh, last year we started taking Krakatoa and making a standalone renderer. So uh, we have basically released a Python-based tool set for Krakatoa called Krakatoa SR, as well as a C API. And what we're showing off at the show right now is the full integration inside of Maya for Krakatoa. As well, Frost is a tool that we've taken and made a standalone Linux Windows version of it. And we're looking at implementing that. And XMesh, which we didn't touch on, is our mesh caching tool that can take all of this geometry, bring it in, cross-platform, uh, works in Maya as well. So there are facilities that have taken data that they've created in Max, brought them directly into Maya, or taken Maya data, brought them into Max, and done something with them, and then brought them back using XMesh. So these tools are starting to transition and move over. And I guess what we're trying to understand from the marketplace is, do people want a standalone tool set? Do they want it integrated inside their packages? What packages? What's most important? Because our idea is we want to support everyone with these tools. We don't want to just create these little separate islands. All of our tools connect in a number of ways across themselves. So we want to continue that across other applications and platforms. Okay, so I said at the halfway point in this episode we had some big news for you, and we do. John? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, back in April during NAB, we had an FX Insider kind of pledge drive of sorts, a support drive. And one of the aspects of that was development of an iPad app, because we really want to bring our content to mobile platform. We're really excited to say that we're going to start having a beta test for our new iPad development that has been in the works since then, and a bit longer. Uh, really the goal behind the idea behind the iPad app is to have something where the content is king. It's about the articles, the imagery, high-res imagery, uh, and the ability to kind of save articles for offline viewing later, as well just save and archive them so you can maybe save some of those art of stories to have on your iPad with you Plus all we, the time. We do travel a bit, so having it uh, load up to your iPhone so that you can read stuff on the plane is a useful thing. Yeah, so we've been works in, in the works in this for several months, but what we want to do is have you guys go and sign up to be a beta tester, and this is only available to FX Insider members at this point in time. If you check out the site in the quick take section, we'll have links on how you can sign up to be a beta tester, and we expect next week we'll have the first version out. Still a bit rough under the edges, but we're really excited to get your feedback, kind of help us determine how to do certain things in the app moving forward. But that's just one aspect of what we're doing yeah, related to the think, iPad. But wait, there's more. Okay, You've so been working you, on something. Yeah, because you guys oversubscribed to what we asked for for that. So <laughs> we were tempted, obviously, to go out and just use that money for drinking, but we didn't. What we did is we thought Not we'd actually it. provide even more in, in the way of stuff that we thought you might find useful. So for those of you on the iPad and perhaps on the FX PhD side of the uh, two companies, what we've done is produce a book. It's a free book available in, I think, 33 now, mm -hmm. um, iTunes stores. You want to go and get this as an iBook. So it's not an app, it's an iBook. But it's an FX PhD iBook on uh, one of our short films, Moving Day. And it's basically like a, mo a making of uh, of the film. It also includes trailer, the film, uh, a ton of videos and clips, stuff from uh, various FX PhD courses. It's all available free. All you need to do is go to the uh, store, download it, as I say, but it, you'll get that through your um, iBooks app 
on your phone if you, or on your, sorry, on your iPad. Yeah, and exactly. And a big thanks to all of you for your donations during that program. Of course, you can still donate now by clicking on the FX Insider tab if you haven't done that. But it, just, again, our way of thanking you for your support and showing that it really does make a difference in what we do here at FX Guide. And the iBook is available to everybody, FX Guide, Insider or not, mm -hmm. and of course, everyone in FX PhD. Well, that's it for this episode from Seagraph. As always, be sure to check out the site for printed articles as well as news and other press releases that come from it. Oh, yeah, and the uh, podcast we did with what we mentioned at the beginning of the show, which was the physics thing. Uh, we have actually spoke to uh, mm -hmm. and did a whole thing on that. So there's a podcast on that if you obviously weren't here at Seagraph and didn't get a chance to go to it. Absolutely awesome. And a big shout out to Jeff, who's been helping us behind the scenes as well. But that's it from us. Let's head on back to Sydney and Angie. We have more coverage from SIGGRAPH at the site and much more that the guys are bringing back to the office for FXPHD and its weekly video magazine show, Background Fundamentals. As of this term, you have FX Guide TV here on fxguide.com and a weekly companion show inside FXPHD called Background Fundamentals. We used to offer background as a course, but now it is its own weekly show for FXPHD members. Thanks for being with us and until next time, I'm Angie Dale. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.